One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. He had a sheet draped over him, and uh, it had a a large quantity of, of blood on it. And I said to him, oh my God. And um, he said that he'd killed my parents. Ian Soaring, do you have any reason to say or cause to offer why this court should not now pronounce judgment in your two cases? I'm innocent. The year is 1985. A brutal double murder rocks the small town of Lynchburg, Virginia. The victims are a wealthy couple named Nancy and Derek Haysom. Months later, their 21-year-old daughter, Elizabeth Haysom, and her 19-year-old boyfriend, Jens Zuring, a German student and a son of a diplomat, will become the targets of the investigation. Upon his arrest, Zuring confesses to the murders. Four years later, during his trial, he recants his confession and claims that he only took the blame to save Elizabeth Haysom, whom Zuring claims is the real killer, from the death penalty. In 1990, Jens Zuring is found guilty of the murders of Nancy and Derek Haysom by a U.S. jury and is handed down two life sentences. Zuring is now a convicted double murderer, the trial attracts a great deal of public and media attention in the U.S. and later in Germany. The Zuring System, a podcast series from CCC Cinema and Television and Argon Lab 2022. Please note, this podcast contains graphic descriptions of physical and sexual violence that are not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 1 of 8, The Case. To this day, Jens Zuring insists that he is innocent. While he is in prison, he builds up an international network of supporters, whom he refers to in German as his Freundeskreis, or Circle of Friends. Prominent advocates, including best-selling author John Grisham, actor Martin Sheen, and music industry executive Jason Flom, who has worked with stars such as Katy Perry and Lord, have all worked to have Zuring released. They say that they believe he is innocent. Over the years, Zuring has submitted numerous appeals along with applications for parole, habeas corpus petitions, and requests for pardons. All of them have been denied. The authorities were unable to find sufficient grounds 
to overturn Zuring's conviction. That is, until at the age of 53, Jens Zuring is paroled and deported to Germany after 33 years in prison. When he arrives at the Frankfurt airport, he is met by a throng of supporters and journalists. Camera teams are on hand to film the event. Zuring holds a press conference for the journalists at the airport. German newspapers and television stations such as Die Welt, Vidia Actuelle, and Phoenix have posted videos of this moment on their YouTube channels. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. After 33 years, six months, and 25 days, I'm so happy to finally, finally be here in Germany. This is so wonderful. I'm so happy. This is the best day of my life. Jens Suring served a long sentence. Had he been imprisoned in Germany, he could have been released many years ago, even if he had received a life sentence. Now his case could finally be put to rest. He has the right to return to society. And yet Zuring remains a figure in the media and continues to tell his story to the public. Since his return to Germany, he has become a popular guest on talk shows and radio programs. He has been interviewed by nearly every major newspaper and magazine in Germany. This inner strength, more than anything, this ability to survive everything that you've been through these 33 years, where did you find it? About what such a long time behind bars can do to a person. Can you see yourself starting over, falling in love again, starting a new relationship? Your first serious relationship ended in disaster, as we have discussed. Now that you're free, can you see yourself as a friend, a life partner, a husband or a father? Jens Suring claims to be a victim of the justice system. Based on these interviews, none of these news outlets seem to be questioning his claim of innocence. They all receive special media packs that not only contain certain case files, but also documents created by Jens Suring himself. These documents created by Zuring are mainly files and paperwork containing information that all seem to prove Zuring's innocence. He's a manipulator. Whenever the facts don't go his way, when they're not in line with his version of the story, then he manipulates people by shifting the focus entirely away from those unfavorable facts. And instead, he fully focuses on discrediting the person who is bringing these facts into the public domain. The podcast The Zuring System takes a critical look at the case and how it's been received by the German media. Over the years, Jens Zuring has created an effective system that has allowed him to keep finding new platforms for his version of events, while at the same time protecting him against critical coverage. This podcast asks questions that Zuring has not been publicly confronted with for years. Well, I, th I think that... Um I'm hoping that the, the work that you do will go a long way to convince people that um, certainly that things aren't as Zuring says they are, and then they can make their own mind up. But uh, as long as he carries on telling the lies, I'll carry on shooting them down. I'm here because I want to rectify the mistakes I've made. I want to set the record straight and make people understand what you read is not the actual truth, and you need to be more aware of, you know, what's what's actually happening. My personal moral conviction is I'm certain that he did it. And I think he was 
quite soundly convicted in a very fair trial. This podcast takes a close look at public court records, expert assessments, witness statements, photos, and news reports in order to offer the public another perspective on the case. We will hear from a variety of people, including police who worked on the case in England and the U.S., and impartial experts who have no personal connection with the case. Jens Zuring's story is a controversial and polarizing one. Anyone who expresses a critical opinion automatically becomes Zuring's opponent. And that comes with consequences. The Opposition Annabelle. One person who is willing to face the possible consequences of speaking out is Annabelle, a paralegal who currently lives and works in London. We will only be identifying her by her first name in order to protect her family's privacy. She got to know the Zuring system from the inside, and on this podcast, she talks openly for the first time about her experiences as a former member of Zuring's circle of friends. So I'm originally from Germany. I've been living in the UK for around 17 years now. I first became part of Zuring's circle of friends, the so-called Freundeskreis, after watching the documentary film Killing for Love. Killing for Love, also known as The Promise, is directed by German director and Grimme Prize winner Marcus Vetter and Süddeutsche Zeitung journalist Karen Steinberger. The documentary is released in 2016 and examines Zuring's case. It is shown at several international film festivals, in movie theaters, and on television. As a result of the film, many are inspired to join the network of Zuring's supporters. It just seems so incredibly unjust to me. Such a huge miscarriage of justice and, and a life lost, you know, a human being imprisoned for more than 30 years for a crime he alleges he didn't commit. Annabelle decides to contact Zuring's circle of friends. So at the time, I never would have imagined that only three months later, I would end up having the court documents on my desk over time, I was so deeply involved in the case that for a long time, Jens Zuring himself referred to me as his uh, second most important supporter. So when he returned to Germany at the end of 2019, I traveled to Hamburg to meet him. And um, I was still part of the team until I was kicked out. Annabelle is the first person from Zuring's inner circle to speak openly about her experiences with him and the circle of friends. This is a decision that requires a great deal of courage in the eyes of her former fellow campaigners and also for Zuring himself, whose freedom Annabelle fought for for many years. She is a traitor. This is another reason why she does not want to have her full name to be used on this podcast. I am afraid of him, and this is something that I've said to Terry as well, because Jens Zuring is uh, somewhat unpredictable. And I ended up in a situation where I revealed far too much about myself, so I am afraid of him. Yeah. Terry Wright. Terry Wright is a retired Scotland Yard detective. 
He is also the author of a 454-page report in which he exhaustively analyzes Zuring's claims of innocence. Wright catches the attention of Zuring and his circle of friends after submitting his report to the governor of Virginia and later posting it online. According to Zuring's network, Wright's criticism is unfounded, and furthermore, they question whether or not Terry Wright even wrote the report himself. My name's Terry Wright. I'm a retired Metropolitan Police officer. I joined the Metropolitan Police in 1982, and I retired in 2015. Back in 1986, I was one of the officers involved in the case of Jan Searing and Elizabeth Hayson. I'm the author of the report that was submitted to the Governor of Virginia and later released on the internet, and it's known as the Wright Report. Terry Wright worked for the London Metropolitan Police for more than 30 years. Over the course of his career, he also worked together with other organizations including the FBI, the UK National Criminal Intelligence Service, NCIS, and the United Nations Mission in Kosovo, UNMIK. In 1986, he is one of the first officers to question Elizabeth Hasem and Jens Zuring after their arrest in London. The case has haunted him to this day. Over the last two years, I was very busy writing a report about the Jan Suring case. I'd heard that there was new DNA evidence that uh, showed that he was innocent, and I was concerned that if he was innocent, that he shouldn't be in prison, and I would be one of the first to try and get him released. So I started to look again at all the old evidence, that the, the copies that I had, and um, I expected to be writing a letter probably 20 or 30 pages long. It later turned into a report, over 400 pages, which I then submitted to the governor of Virginia. For Terry Wright, it's about finding out the truth. The goal of his report, which he spent several months compiling and which he had his former Scotland Yard partner, Kenneth Beaver, review, is to get to the bottom of things. Andrew Hamill. Andrew Hamill, an American lawyer, former law professor, and author living in Dusseldorf, has also discovered what it means to come up against Jens Zuring and his team. My name is Andrew Hamill, and I've lived in Germany for about 20 years now and quite enjoy it here. I'm no longer actively licensed to practice law because uh, I've moved on from being a lawyer. I was also a law professor at the University of Dusseldorf for about 10 years, an associate professor. But then I just decided to leave academia. And so I have law degrees from the University of Houston and Harvard Law School. And I publish in English and in German on various themes, usually about the law and criminal justice and constitutional law and public policy and things like that. Andrew Hamill has followed the Zuring case for a long time. After all, in America, the Hasem murders were national news. So the case in general was always on my radar screen um, from even before I went to law school. Uh, when I came to Germany and began teaching at a German university, many students, they were aware of my background as a criminal defense lawyer, and they asked me about Jensering because he was, you know, a minor celebrity in Germany. But I only became really interested in the case in 2019, after hearing about it for years and years, and um, I watched the film 
Killing for Love, and the film struck me as, you know, raising more questions than it answered. And I thought to myself, all right, let's, let me just see whether there's really anything to his innocence story. Andrew Hamill explains what has drawn him to the case. Well, I guess I'm a person who likes a good debunking. And uh, now I realize that basically uh, millions of Germans and Americans believe conspiracy theories about the case of Yin Zering. And I thought I could do something to basically clear away the conspiracy nonsense and get back to the real truth that he genuinely did kill the Hazems. Hamill privately follows the case over the years until December 2019, when the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung publishes a long-form article on the Zuring case that Hamill has researched and written. This article makes him the face of the anti-Zuring faction practically overnight, a role that he has since resigned himself to, one that he has taken on and is willing to play, and one that has made him popular in some circles and notorious in others. Since the article was published, he has continued to follow the case, has published additional articles about the case in the FAZ, on his blog, and on other platforms, and sees himself as a counterweight and corrective to the standard Zuring narrative. The Beginning The case begins with a meeting that, in hindsight, would be a fatal one. In 1984, 18-year-old Jens Zuring meets 20-year-old Elizabeth Hasem during their freshman year at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Both had received prestigious merit-based scholarships. They soon fall in love and begin what would ultimately become a toxic relationship, one that would be characterized by fear of abandonment, inferiority complexes, and violent fantasies. The murder. On March 30th, 1985, a brutal double murder occurs in a suburb of Lynchburg, Virginia. Elizabeth Haysom's parents, Nancy and Derek Haysom, are a couple that is well known in the area and who live in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. After a friend of the family tries unsuccessfully for several days to reach Nancy and Derek Haysom, she drives to their home in Lynchburg, Bedford County, which Nancy has named Loose Chippings. She has a spare key. The scene that greets her there is horrific. Nancy Hasem, 53-year-old, is found in the kitchen wearing a robe. Her 72-year-old husband, Derek, is lying on the threshold between the living room and the dining room. Their throats have been cut so severely that they are both practically beheaded. She's wearing a, a blue floral-type housecoat, and it, it is quite shocking for anybody that's not used to those seeing photographs like that. Uh, but actually, there's another photograph which is even worse. After they've done the initial photographs, they've rolled Nancy over, and you can see the extent of her injuries to her throat, and they are horrendous and very shocking. Terry Wright holds the crime scene photos in his hands. He has brought them with him from London, along with a pile of papers, documents, copies, and transcripts that he has compiled over the past decades. There were also some other photographs of Derek Hasem, where the photographer has obviously 
taken the photographs ar around the body and then to demonstrate the extent of his wounds they've pulled his shirt up to expose his back and you can see multiple stab wounds and blood all over his back some of the stab wounds have obviously been made by a knife that's gone straight in even though i'm not a forensic scientist i can see that and others the the wounds are actually quite long where i, I presume the knife's gone in and then it's been ripped downwards and again quite shocking but nowhere near as shocking as the actual photograph that shows the injuries to Derek's face and throat. And they are really, really awful. And probably the worst injuries I've ever seen throughout my service. And I know that most of the American officers have said exactly that, that they'd never seen injuries like it. It's so bad that these photographs haven't really been circulated anywhere. The Virginia authorities never put them out for the public to see because obviously that would be very upsetting to friends and family and actually probably upsetting to any member of the public that's just looking at them but you can see that Derek's throat was cut from his chin right down his jawbone right to the back of his neck uh, down both sides and then right down to his breastbone and it, it, it is basically his whole throat is just wide open to the extent that it's open maybe well it's from his breastbone to his, to the to the top of his to the bottom of his chin and it's only the the back of the neck that's actually holding his head on he has some horrendous slashes across his face and it, it looks to me and again this is just my opinion but it looks to me as though whoever did it uh, was in some kind of a frenzy the investigators who arrived on the scene will later describe the events as a slaughterhouse. In their opinions, this was clearly a case of overkill, a term that's used in the fields of criminal law to describe when an attacker inflicts injuries that greatly exceed what is necessary to kill the victim. The investigation. In Bedford County, Detectives Ricky Gardner and Chuck Reed are entrusted with the case. They pursue a number of different leads. Evidence is collected at the scene of the crime, including a bloody sock print and blood samples. For the investigators, one thing is clear. The Haysoms must have known their murderer or murderers. On a video call, Ricky Gardner, the now-retired criminal investigator, recalls the start of the investigation. The investigation revealed early that there was no forced entry into the residence. And secondly, it didn't appear to be a robbery because there was jewelry and money found in the residence. So right off the bat, the investigation showed that whoever killed the Hasems, uh, most likely they knew because they invited them into the house. It wasn't a forced entry, as I said. And then uh, the, the motive obviously wasn't robbery. Initially, the Haysom's friends and family are questioned and are eliminated as suspects through alibis, plausible statements, and discrepancies with the evidence collected at the scene. In September 1985, less than five and a half months after the crime, Jens Zuring and Elizabeth Haysom become the target of the investigation. Both are summoned individually to the local police station for questioning. Elizabeth Haysom is cooperative and friendly. She does not hesitate at the time 
or later on in the investigation to give the police samples of her hair, blood, fingerprints, and footprints for comparison. Her alibi. On the weekend in question, she was in Washington, D.C. with her boyfriend, Jens Suring. We asked her where she was that weekend, and she that's when she told us that she and her boyfriend, uh, Jens Soaring, had rented a car in Washington that weekend on that Friday evening after they got out of class and that they drove to uh, Washington, uh, stayed at the Washington Marriott, and then spent the day sightseeing or whatever and seen some movies. But the mileage on the rental car tells a different story. The autometer shows too many miles for a trip from Charlottesville to Washington, D.C. It is, however, enough to include a detour from Washington to Lynchburg. Um, you know, confronted her about the mileage on the rental car, and she stated that they had traveled around the D.C. area and that to and from they had gotten lost a couple of different times uh, throughout their travels and that uh, that was her explanation for the uh, unexplained miles on the rental car. The investigators remain skeptical. The car is searched for trace amounts of blood with luminol, a substance that causes a light-producing chemical reaction when it comes into contact with substances or chemicals that contain iron. But no blood is found. According to Terry Wright, there could be a number of reasons for this. That doesn't mean to say there was no blood there. It just means they didn't find any. So you don't know how well the car was actually examined. And I think basically a few swabs were taken in a few places and, and that was it. There's no real in-depth examination of that car. The car had also been returned to the rental company and the first thing they do when a customer brings the car back is clean it. I don't know how many times it had been rented out in between them taking it back and the police examining the car. I don't know whether or not the car was examined in broad daylight, where there could have been a reaction that was never seen because of the daylight. This means that, according to Terry Wright, we cannot say for certain whether or not there was any blood in the car based on the luminol testing. Ricky Gardner recalls. You know, we didn't find the blood in the car. And throughout this whole period of time, of course, we was interested in talking to Soaring but he um, wouldn't make himself available for any interviews. So he wouldn't respond to my phone calls or requests for any kind of an interview. At some point, however, Zuring changes his mind and says he is willing to come in for questioning. And I believe that date was October the 6th. It was a Sunday afternoon, and he agreed to come to Bedford County. Chuck Reed and I uh, interviewed him at the sheriff's office. We uh, audio taped the interview. And at that particular time is when... Uh, he was um, a very arrogant and, you know, basically told us that he couldn't understand why we would ever suspect him of, of murdering these people, that he wasn't capable of doing that. So, uh, you know, we asked him, OK, Elizabeth's given us her blood and her uh, foot impressions, anatomical foot impressions and, and uh, fingerprints. How about you given us yours? And he said, no, he said, I can't do that. In March 2012, Jens Suring's book, Nichtschuldig, Not Guilty, is published in German by Drummer Knur. In it, Suring tells his life story and shares his view on the case. Among other things, he describes how, after being questioned by the two investigators in Bedford County in October 1985, one thing was clear. He and Elizabeth had to leave the country as quickly as possible. 
Zuring drives back to his apartment and tries to remove all of his fingerprints there. According to Zuring and Haysom's diary entries, which are later seized and used in court, Zuring is worried that he may have left fingerprints on a coffee cup at the police station in Bedford County. But if he hadn't been present at the scene of the crime, why would he be so worried about his fingerprints? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And the reason it doesn't make sense is because he was traveling on his own passport. And in those days, fingerprints weren't electronic, so nobody could trace him from his fingerprints as he traveled around Europe, but they would trace him from his passport. The getaway. When Haysom and Zuring ran away from America, it was quite a, a hasty departure. They closed their bank accounts, withdrew as much money as they could, bought their tickets, and they actually travelled separately. Zuring went first. On October 12, 1985, Jens Zuring flies from Washington, D.C. to Brussels. From there, he takes a train to Paris. That's uh, a point that perhaps might be of interest to you because... Elizabeth Haysom followed the next day, whereas if she really wanted him to take the blame for the murder, she could have actually stayed there and then just said, Jans did it and that's why he's run away. But she didn't. She went with him because at the time she uh, she felt that she loved him and uh, and that she had been a big part of the, of the reason why uh, her parents were dead. During her trial in 1987, Elizabeth Haysom even testifies that she wanted to remain in the U.S., but Zuring had blackmailed her that he had taken compromising letters with him to Europe and threatened to send the letters to the police if she didn't follow him. A few days later, Haysom flies to Europe. In Virginia, the investigations come to a halt. Retired police officer Ricky Gardner. We didn't have enough evidence to arrest them. Once you arrest somebody uh, and you've only got one chance of a bite at the apple, if you will, and if, if you don't have your ducks in a row and all your evidence lined up uh, and you go to trial and, and, and you can't prove the case and they're found not guilty, then you can't retry. His car was found at the um, airport uh, a couple of days later. So we at that particular time, we surmised that they probably had left the country. You know, we were sort of dead in the water at that particular time because we didn't know where they were, where they went. We didn't know anything the scam. Jens Zuring and Elizabeth Haysom spend the following months traveling across Europe and Southeast Asia. They finance their expensive itinerary and lifestyle with different scams. They record their experiences in a sort of shared diary. They take turns writing letters and notes in a notebook that they use to document their trip. They had various schemes and they recorded them in the diary. Uh, one of them was um, they actually stole some collection boxes. And I, I say stole, they might have actually gone to the charity office and actually picked up some boxes, but the, they were trying to collect money on the streets until they were stopped by a local police officer, and they thought that was a bad idea then because they, they got away with it once because the police officer just believed them, uh, and they thought, we better not do that again in case we get stopped again. In February 1986... Jens Zuring and Elizabeth Haysom arrive in England where they shuttle back and forth between Bath and London. 
Amidst the hustle and bustle of the city, they try out increasingly brazen strategies for acquiring money through various kinds of check fraud. They deposited cash of their own into the bank accounts to open them. Once they had the checkbooks, they would come to London, they would spend the whole checkbook over the, over the period of a weekend, and they would spend them specifically in Marks & Spencer's store. If you decided you didn't like an item, they would just accept it back and give you your money back. So that was a way of changing the cheque into cash. Okay, So buy it with a cheque and then do the exchange and you've now got the cash. And then on the, on the Monday, they would go back to their bank and say, we were in London at the weekend and somebody stole our chequebook. And they've used, and of course the bank would then find out that the whole chequebook had been used. So the money that uh, had been spent using the cheques would then get reimbursed to their account. A clever system that works seamlessly for Zuring and Haysom, at least at first. He planned everything out meticulously, and of course it all went wrong, which is, you know, what normally happens with his plans. To save time and acquire greater sums of money more quickly, Zuring makes a small adjustment to his plan. This time, they will both go shopping at the same Marks and Spencer at the same time. And what they were doing was, Zuring was walking around the store buying ladies' clothes, and Hayson was walking around the store buying men's clothes. And they walked around separately, and they, they even passed each other and didn't, didn't even acknowledge each other. And Sefton, the, uh, the store detective, saw them do a refund, saw them do a check purchase. Although there is no reason to stop them, the store detective decides to follow Zuring and Hayson. She just thought they looked strange. Uh, it just wasn't normal behaviour. So she followed them around as best she could inside the store, um, and then she followed them outside. And when they, met, when they went outside, they met up and began to talk to each other. So that is unusual behaviour, isn't it? You know, totally ignore each other inside the store, meet up outside, and she was suspicious. Yeah, she, she followed them along the main high street in Richmond, which is not a, a very big suburb, but she followed them along the road and actually bumped into um, an off-duty police officer that she knew and, and told him what she'd seen. So he began to follow them as well. But he was off-duty and he didn't want to follow them all the way into London and, uh, you know, spend the whole day when he's supposed to be on his day off. So they followed them and they uh, onto a train, uh, an underground train, and they went to the next stop. And at that next stop, they um, stopped the train and got them off the train and then asked them what, what you know, about their behaviour. And of course, that led to their arrest. The arrest. At the police station in the London neighborhood of Richmond, Jens Zering and Elizabeth Hasem meet the detectives Kenneth Beaver and Terry Wright. When they got arrested for the fraud, both of them were, were very polite. We were polite to them, of course. Of course, they were trying to convince us that they were just two students from Canada. Uh, in fact, he was meant to be a student and she was meant to be a writer. Zuring and Hasem claimed to be Christopher Platt and Tara Lucy Noel, a married couple from Canada. These are the names on their IDs. They had their ID cards, uh, and although they were false, we had nothing to compare them with. We'd never seen a, a Canadian driving license or a, an ID card, so we didn't know whether they were genuine or not. The names are also on their bank paperwork and checkbooks. And obviously that's the same name on the checkbooks. 
So they, they were saying that everything was legitimate. It's their bank accounts, their signatures, although, albeit not saying Jan Suring, their signatures said Christopher No. Zuring and Hasem do their best to act as inconspicuous as possible. But it isn't enough for Wright and his colleagues. Since the pair only have their Canadian ID cards on them, Wright asks for their passports. When they said they were Canadian citizens, I said, well, where's your passport then? And they were staying in an address, I think it was in Bath. There's a small t- town in, uh, in, in the UK called Bath. And... Um, I said that I would get the local police to go around and search that house. So I think he would, that put him in a difficult position. He either told us where the passport and where they were living in London for that weekend, or we would go around and disrupt the family that they were lodging with. So in the end, I think he decided he would tell us where, you know, where the, the apartment was in London, and, um, and that was a big mistake, I think. Without realising it, Jens Suring has played right into the detective's hands. We can actually, if somebody's in custody for an arrestable offence, the police have the power to search any premises that they have control of. So obviously our next step was to get, take him with us and go and search the, the premises. Actually, when we got there, the first thing I saw on the bed was a load of wigs and hats and basically theatrical disguises. And I immediately realised that all the time we'd been speaking to him, Zuring's moustache was false. <laughs> He'd been wearing this false moustache all the time and nobody had noticed. But it was a very good quality theatrical moustache. The jig is up. At the hotel room in London, the police make additional discoveries. So I took that off him <laughs> and um, found his passports and basically... The, there was, I forget the exact amount now, but I do have records of it. There was a couple of thousand pounds in cash. There was maybe 28 or 30 bags of Marks and Spencer's property, which uh, amounted to about uh, 1,600 pounds worth of property. As strange as this collection of objects may appear, the situation seems clear. At this point, Zuring and Hasem can no longer claim to be two harmless married students from Canada. Terry Wright. You could see that it was um, quite a well-organised criminal enterprise. Uh, we took all the property back to the police station and then we interviewed him the following day and, of course, he explained... They both admitted that, uh, what they'd done and they uh, explained how they went about doing it. Given the overwhelming evidence, Zuring and Hasem admit to committing check fraud. But Wright can tell there's something bigger here. He goes over every detail of Zuring and Hasem's belongings. Even if, at this time, Wright has no idea what kind of dark secret Jens Zuring and Elizabeth Hasem are hiding and will soon reveal. He was sitting most of the time, but he did get up and reenact it, showing how, you know, using gestures with his hands to show how he cut, uh, cut their throats and how Derek Hasem wouldn't sit, wouldn't lie down and die. The Zuring System, episode one of eight, The Case. Our narrator is Karen Cifarelli. You also heard the voice talents of Michelle Glick, Sungur Benturk, and Seamus Sargent. This has been a production of Argonne Lab and CCC Cinema and Television 2022.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.